Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, we are uh, this morning continuing a sermon series uh, in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking uh, today at Isaiah chapter 6. And this really is one, there's a few of these passages in Isaiah that we come to that are just these kind of towering mountains in, uh, in all of the Bible. Uh, there's these beautiful passages that show us who God is and his intentions for his world and his people. And Isaiah 6 is one uh, kind of justly famous passage. It's the, the story of Isaiah's call to be a prophet. We've said that uh, the first five chapters of Isaiah are really prelude. They are kind of rehearsing some of the themes that will come uh, and be front and center in the prophet's work. But Isaiah 6 is the story of Isaiah meeting God and being called into his service. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as I read God's word for us? The reading will be Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear the reading of God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Isaiah begins his story by telling you what time it is, he says that this happened in the year that King Uzziah died. And you go, well, that is a a strange way to keep time. It's a strange way to tell you what year it is. He says it's the, you know what time it was, it was the year that King Uzziah died. We're getting, of course, a little bit of uh, a taste for this this year, right? 2022, uh, going forward, you could say, especially to uh, an English person, you know, the year that Queen Elizabeth died, the year that everything stopped and, uh, you know, you waited in line for four weeks to go in and get into to do the, the viewing of the body, and then there was a, a national holiday coming up on Monday. 
These things don't happen all the time, right? The reign, especially of a monarch uh, like Elizabeth or like Uzziah. Uzziah sat on the throne for 52 years. He was crowned when he was 16. And so the year that he died was a marker of time for the people of Israel. It was a marker that they would have remembered that would have meant something to them to say, you remember what year it was. It was the year that King Uzziah, who had reigned so successfully, who had brought such stability and goodness to our land, the year that he died was the year that I was called. This moment marked a crossroads in the life of Israel. You can read about Uzziah and what his uh, life was like in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But Uzziah was a good king. He became king at 16, uh, and his reign, uh, like his father's before him, had been marked by a faithfulness to God, an obedience to God. Wisdom and ruling that led to a period of prosperity for the nation of Israel. We're told that he was a king who, who followed God as his father had. And in the midst of that, Israel saw uh, material prosperity. They grew in wealth. They saw military prosperity. They, they won their, their major enemies at this time were the Philistines. And they had pushed back the Philistines and even uh, so had more security in Israel. It saw technological gains. We're told that uh, under his reign, Israel developed uh, what seems like weaponry machines that they put on the gates of, of Jerusalem to help them withstand attacks from their enemies. So they grew in technology and prosperity and victories. But what happened in Uzziah's life, unfortunately, that's not the whole story. Because in his success and in his, and in his power, we're told that he became something uh, a bit smug and complacent and self-satisfied. We're told that in his strength, he became proud. And then one day, he went into the temple to make an offering of incense at the center of the temple. And we're told that 80 priests, 80 priests, that's a lot of priests, came to stop him and said, look, Uzziah, you can't do this. You're a king, you're a good king, but this is just for the priests to do. This isn't your role, but self-satisfied and sure of himself, he pressed on. He was struck with leprosy and spent his final years living in isolation, not living in the palace, not governing the nation, but living off into a house by himself, alone and isolated. And by the time he dies, Israel, not only as a king that's locked away with leprosy, but also the nation of Assyria is growing in power and in ambition. Assyria is beginning to conquer other lands and their, their, their direction, their movement, is starting to move right towards Israel. So when Isaiah says that this was the year that King Uzziah died, what he's saying is this is the end of a period of national peace and prosperity and security it's a period of increasing anxiety and fear and worry. That it was in the midst of this transitional time. You might be able to identify with something of that. I think that uh, many, in our, uh, in our, not only in our nation, but in the world, have felt uh, some of that recently. That we've come from a period of relative security and stability, relative normalcy. It's felt to many into several years of what's felt like high anxiety, high fear and concern, wondering what the future's going to hold. And what we see in this story, what we see in this call, 
is that each one of us needs what Isaiah got here. That each of us needs, remember what what Isaiah says, that it's in the year that Uzziah dies, I saw the Lord lifted up on a throne. Right? That as this world goes through its ups and downs, as kings and rulers come and go, we need a vision of one whose throne never goes. We need a vision of one who is reality, whose reality is more firm and stable and lasting than our inner life and then our outer life, right? Than, the, than what's going on in our culture around us or how we feel about that on the inside. That we need to come face to face with an experience of reality beyond us, beyond our world. And Isaiah's experience of God here in this moment totally changes the direction of his life. It gives him a, a, a brand new vision of who God is, It gives him a whole new awareness of who he is and what his biggest needs are. And it gives him an entirely new vocation, an entirely new project for his entire life. That when you experience the true God, as Isaiah does here, it turns your life upside down. It utterly rearranges what you thought you knew and your priorities for your life. And so the question is worth asking, have you met God in that way? Right? Have you met God in such a way, experienced his reality in such a way, that it utterly changes your life, that it changes how you think of yourself, how you think of your job and your calling and your relation to the universe and to God himself? Because if you haven't, you've likely not met the real God. Right? That's what the real God does. He sets our life in a different course. And lesser counterfeit offers of God will never do that, right? Gods that we can manage and control, gods that we can fit into our preconceived ideas of God can never ultimately change us. But when you meet the real God, it changes everything. And so we're going to look at Isaiah's meeting with God. We're going to look at him seeing God, him seeing uh, himself, and then his hearing of God's call. First, let's look at what it means for Isaiah and therefore what it means for us to see God, to come to know God. Isaiah, we think, uh, at at the outset of this story, is praying in the temple, right? He says that he sees God lifted up. God's not bound by the temple, but the train of his robe fills the temple. And then later, when God speaks, the foundations of the threshold of the temple shake, So we think that Isaiah has gone uh, to the temple probably like he did many days of his life. That he went to the temple as every faithful Israelite went to the temple to make their prayers, to make their sacrifices. He went to the place where he was told to go to meet God and to worship God. But on this day, something unusual happened. It wasn't just church as usual. It wasn't just his normal trip to the temple. He sees God enthroned over the temple with his tr- the train of his robe filling the temple. The temple uh, in Israel, uh, they believed God was present in the temple. In fact, God promised to be present in the temple. But they knew that the temple couldn't really contain God. Sometimes the temple uh, and the altar at its center will be called the footstool of God. Sometimes they'll talk about his feet resting in the temple or here his, his robe filling the temple. So the idea is that the temple was this thin place where heaven and earth were very, very close to each other. It was the place where God dwelt with his people, 
But the temple could never contain God. And so Isaiah here, we're told, sees God. Now elsewhere in the scriptures, we're told that no one can see God and live. In fact, when Moses, when God reveals himself to Moses, I remember when we preached through Exodus what he does. He says, look, tuck yourself over here in this, in this rock, and I'm going to pass by. And then once I'm past, you can turn and look at my, just, just at the back as I pass. And so because God is altogether other, because he's entirely holy, entirely powerful, entirely uh, beyond us, every appearance of God is mediated in some way. Every time God reveals his glory to human beings, he mediates it in such a way that we can see it but not die. He gives a little bit but not all. And so Isaiah's knowledge of God, his vision of God, is entirely what God wants to show him. That God is in control and God is revealing something of himself to Isaiah. And God does this to each of us and for each of us. Of course, supremely, he does this for us in Jesus, right? In Jesus, we have the mediated, through Christ, appearance of God the Father. That God, the Trinity, comes to us in Jesus. He records his word for us in the Scripture. That God continues to show us his real self. Not in a, We don't see all of him. We're, we're limited. We can only understand so much at a time. But God wants to be known by us in the same way that he wanted to be known by Isaiah. And what Isaiah sees of God is of a big, holy God, entirely beyond us and yet near to us, entirely other than us, and yet come near to be understood by us. This God is an alien God, not an extraterrestrial, you know, but entirely foreign to anything in our experience of normal creaturely life, wholly other and entirely, entirely holy. He clues Isaiah and us into a reality of our lives that's beyond what we see and know in our daily lives. That there is a supernatural reality beyond our creaturely life, beyond our struggles and our bodies and our culture and our lives. That there is a reality that's beyond all of that. And the invitation of Christianity is an invitation to come in touch with the reality that orders the world, that made the world, that dwells above the world. That that glory, that glorious and holy God comes near to us and reveals himself to us and wants a relationship with us. Bernard of Clairvaux was a French mystic and monk in the 13th century. Spent his entire life praying and seeking God. Spent his entire life wanting to know who God is. He was actually, uh, he, he was a pre-Reformation figure, but is quoted uh, more often by the Protestant reformers than anyone else other than Augustine. He was uh, Calvin's favorite uh, pre-Reformation theologian, again, other than Augustine. And this is what he writes. He says, for the soul is only like God, not equal to him. So his language here is a little weird. He says, so the soul is like God. We're made in God's image. Our souls, your soul and my soul are made for God in his image so that you have the capacity to know God, right? You can know God in a way that your dog or your cat cannot. 
right? You are made for God in his image to relate to God. So the soul is like God, but not equal to him. There's a degree of nearness to him, but it's only ever a degree. Thus, the soul can ever glory in her resemblance to the divinity. But still, there will also ever remain between them a gulf of disparity, where all of her bones may cry out, Lord, who is like you? Still, that perfection that the soul possesses is great indeed, and from it alone can the ascent to the blessed life be made. In layman's, you know, 2022 terms, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you are not God, right? The the path to transcendence, the path to, to, to kind of knowing real and genuine spiritual reality doesn't come through positive self-talk. It doesn't come by realizing that you're your own God or you're the master of your own fate, right? It's, he said, you're special. You're special because God made you in his image so that you can really know him. But in your specialness, it's not that you ever become fully like him. The specialness is that God has put a hunger for himself in your heart. He's printed his reality in your life such that you're capable of knowing him, you're capable of encountering him. And what Isaiah shows us is that you're capable of encountering and knowing God in this life, right? That we don't have to wait to die before we know God, to meet our maker, that we can meet him and know him in our our lives. And that's what comes to Isaiah. And I love Isaiah's response to meeting God to seeing God. He immediately feels this, what, what Bernard calls uh, an unbridgeable distance between the soul and God. Notice the first words out of his mouth. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The first words out of his mouth are words of confession and repentance. God never told him to repent, right? God doesn't doesn't say to him, Isaiah, you really ought to think about confessing your sins right now. No, he's just exposed to God's holiness and to his glory. God appears to him and around God are these, uh, they're they're called seraphim here is the first mention of them in the Bible. Uh, We don't know an exact translation of this word. It's It's a supernatural, angelic, spiritual being with six wings, And they cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. They hear this. Hebrew poetry uses repetition uh, to uh, give emphasis. So this is the only place, uh, this, this three times repetition of holy is the only place in the scriptures that we get not just repetition, but three times repetition. This is the the angel saying that God is very, very, very holy. He's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. And in the midst of that, Isaiah says, woe is me, I am lost. You know, there's not a single moment in the Bible, not a single instance where somebody meets God and says to themselves, wow, this is neat. We're a lot alike. Every time a human meets God, they don't walk away feeling great about themselves. 
They don't walk away feeling like, oh man, you're a lot like what I thought you would be. Every time they fall down and have some sense of their own inadequacy, whether it's God appearing to Moses in the burning bush and Moses being terrified, or Jesus with his disciples. Remember the miraculous catch of fish when Jesus says, throw down your nets over there. And Peter says, away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Right? That even Jesus gave people for all of his kindness, for all of his mercy, for all of his grace and tenderness. He still, when his holiness was revealed, when his power was revealed, people still, their first thought was, uh-oh, this is, he's not like me. His holiness, his otherness means that there's something in me that can't just walk in and say, nice to meet you, God, I'm Isaiah. He says, woe is me. Woe, we saw in the last chapter, is an expression of mourning and lament. It's him going, oh no. Oh no, there, there is nothing in my life that, it, that, that means that I should be able to be in the presence of this holy, holy, holy God. And so he immediately, without invitation, without being told he ought to, confesses his sin. Woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. I love that Isaiah goes from general to specific. First, I'm lost. And then he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Right? We, we don't know exactly what he was feeling conviction of. Maybe it's gossip or cursing or slander, anger. But he confesses the sin of the mouth, the sin of his words. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among an entire people of unclean lips. Isaiah shows us something really, really profound here about the nature of sin and the nature of confession. Right, that sin, what Isaiah is confessing here, is both deeply personal and deeply socially pervasive. Right, look, he doesn't just say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he doesn't just say, woe is me, I live among a people of unclean lips. He says, no, no, look, I'm a sinner and I live among sinners. My lips are dirty, and the lips of almost everybody I know are dirty. In showing us this way of confession, Isaiah helps us to avoid two errors that we often fall into. The first error is thinking of sin as primarily social. Right? There's an error that says sin is primarily out there. Sin is something that's gone wrong in the culture. Sin is something that those people need to get a handle on, right? And so it projects sin entirely outside. We see this uh, running rampant, I think, in our world today, even in our Christian world. Our rush to identify sin with its social effects, and this happens on both the right and the left of the American political divide and cultural divide. Whether it's somebody who identifies more with the cultural right, complaining about the evils of this world, that we've lost, uh, that, that sexual sin has run rampant in this world, gender confusion 
is run rampant, and we say sin is out there, that sin is out there. Or on the left, lamenting whether it's the failures of capitalism or systemic racism or neglect of the poor, saying, no, no, what's wrong is those people out there. And Isaiah helps us to to remedy that by saying, no, no, my first concern isn't what I see out there, whatever shape I think it takes. My first concern is my lips, my stuff, my lostness, my lack of holiness before God. And so he avoids that error. So he avoids the error of identifying sin as primarily something out there in the social world. But he also helps us to avoid the other error, which is a purely privatized view of sin. To say that the only thing that matters is me and my lips, right? Me and my sin. It's not just me and God. He says the woe that he pronounces is my life is not what it should be and the life of my people is not what it should be. I live in a broken city, a broken culture, a broken nation. Woe to us. I don't want it to be so. And so Isaiah confesses both of those things at once. To use the two examples mentioned earlier, he's not railing against the sexual brokenness of the world. He's saying, woe is me, I am a sexually broken man, living in the midst of a world that is deeply sexually confused and broken. He's saying, woe is me, I am a prejudiced man, living in the midst of a prejudiced people. You can run down the list, right? I am a greedy man living in the midst of a greedy people. I'm an angry man living in the midst of a violent people. This awareness of sin, that sin distorts our lives and it distorts our society. It distorts our relationships and our cities and our nations and our cultures. And he confesses both of those things, both his individual need and the need of his world. You might put it this way. Isaiah has enough uh, awareness of the brokenness of his world that he can say, look, we are without hope unless God intervenes in this situation. But he's also aware enough of his own sin to go, you know what? I am without hope if God intervenes in this situation. Right? If God fixes our dirty lip problem, I'm going to be in his crosshairs, right? I'm a contributor to the problem of my people. And so in the midst of that, what happens? One of these seraphim comes with a tongue and a hot coal from the altar, and he touches his lips. Fire uh, in the Old Testament and in the New is a symbol of God's holiness and his judgment. But this is not any ordinary coal. It's a coal from the altar. It's the place where the sacrifices were made. And so he brings that sacrificial item as a symbol of his burning and his purifying and his forgiving work. And he touches it, notice where, to Isaiah's lips. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah confesses, and this holy God shows that there is more to him than just his holiness, that in his holiness he is also gracious and merciful, that he makes a way for sinners like Isaiah and sinners like us to come into his presence. He purifies him and he cleans him. 
And I love that he takes his purifying and forgiving fire and he takes it directly to the place that Isaiah had confessed his sin. That he touches his lips with it. There's a place in the Westminster Confession of Faith where we're called, uh, when it's talking about confession, it says that we're called to confess particular sins particularly, which is a, it's a, seems a little bit redundant, but we're supposed to confess particular sins particularly. What does that mean? It means that it is far too safe to say something like, I am such a sinner. God wants to know more than just, yes, I'm a sinner. He wants you to name the ways that you're a sinner, to come to enough self-exploration and understanding and honesty to name your particular sins for particular forgiveness. He wants wants you to know your actual sins and to bring those actual sins into his presence. And he touches that place, Isaiah's particular sin, his sinful lips, his cursing mouth. He touches it, forgives him, and announces that he is completely atoned for, completely forgiven, completely made right with this holy God. And then more than that, he gives Isaiah a call. Listen, Isaiah knew two problems, didn't he? He was aware of a problem. He said, look, I've got an uncleanness problem, and my people have a problem with their uncleanliness, their unclean lips. Well, God says, look, well, first I'm going to deal with your problem. Look, I can't, you're the only, you've confessed of your sin, you've repented of your sin, you, here's your forgiveness, here's your cleansing, you're made new. But you still have this problem of a people that's wayward and wandering from God, sinful and unclean and lip and life, who am I going to send to them? Right? We still want to deal with the problem of a society, a nation, a culture that's gone astray. You're set free. You're forgiven. But now what's going to come of them? What about those people who are just as in need of confession and forgiveness? Who am I going to send to them. Who will go for us? That us, I believe, is one of those little moments in the Old Testament where the curtain gets pulled back on the Trinity just a little. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, who's going to go for us to this people of unclean lips? And then Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Isaiah, having seen God in his reality, having known and come to this truer understanding of himself, having seen his own sin and having experienced grace, says to God, what do you want me to do? You command and I'll go. You send and I'll go. You call and I'll come. And this again is a consistent pattern in the scriptures when someone meets God, that the response is always, God, you tell me what to do. We see it over and over in the stories of the Gospels where Jesus walks up to the men who will become his followers and he says, come, follow me. And they do. Matthew leaves his tax booth. Peter leaves his fishing nets. When when Jesus calls, the people respond. The disciples respond. Often with shockingly little explanation. 
Have you ever noticed that reading the, reading the Gospels? I'll often come and be like, hey, I would, I'm not sure I would have said no. I hope I wouldn't have said no to Jesus when he said come. But I think I would have had questions. Like, come where? What are we going to do? How am I going to feed my family? What's my life going to be like? What do you mean you're a rabbi? What, where are you taking us? But no, they don't have any of those questions. They come, they leave their life. They leave their security. They leave the world they'd known. And they say, okay, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I'll follow wherever you lead. God says, who am I going to send? Isaiah doesn't say, well, I'm interested in the position. Can you tell me more? What are the hours like? Um, is, it going to be, is it going to go well? Are they going to listen? Are they going to like me? Sneak preview? No, not particularly. Am I going to get paid for this job? Where am I going to stay? Are you going to, am I always going to see you like this? No, he just says, all right. I'm here. You can probably do better, but here I am. You can send me. The experience of God's grace always leads us, leads the disciple to this response of obedience. Calvin, John Calvin, uh, said, command my heart promptly and sincerely. That the response to God's voice, the response to his call is prompt and sincere. Lord, help me to obey you from my heart sincerely and quickly, promptly. Grace and obedience are never in conflict in the gospel. Right? There's never a conflict between God's forgiving us entirely by grace, the touching the lips, the forgiveness, the atonement, and a life of obedient service to God and His people. God's exper- the experience of God's grace leads to prompt and sincere following after Jesus. And I love that God's call to Isaiah is not just a call to become a more pious or devotional guy. It's not just, hey, now that you've seen me, you ought to read your Bible and pray more. No, it's now that you've seen me, now that you know me, go. You're called to love my people in the same way that I love them. You're called to love others who are just as lost and just as unclean as you are. You're to submit your life to this mission of mine to reach these wayward people. I'll share something. Uh, I'll try to share this stuff with you when I come across it. You know that I not too long ago began a, what's probably going to be several years of studying the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, for a doctoral program. One of the major works of Bonhoeffer uh, was with a group. So Bonhoeffer lived during the period of the Nazi uh, rise and then power as a, as a German pastor. He and a number of fellow pastors gathered uh, early on when the Nazi government was just starting to take over the German church. So when they were starting to demand loyalty to the Nazi party among clergy and members. And they got together uh, in a city, a German city called Barmen, to write what became known as the Barman Declaration. You know, first thing I learned in my PhD, these weren't just men who liked to go to a bar. That's what I, I thought, barmen, it was men in a bar. But it wasn't. It was a city called Barman. Worth every penny. Um, <laughs> and the second point of the Barman Declaration is this. As Jesus Christ is God's comforting pronouncement of the forgiveness of all our sins... So with equal seriousness, he is also God's vigorous announcement of his claim on our whole life. Through him, there comes to us joyful liberation 
from the godless ties of this world for free, grateful service to God and his creatures. Hear what they're saying? It's the same Jesus. The Jesus who forgives is the Jesus who calls. And what they're getting at here, the reason they're saying all this, is because what was common in the Germany of their time was to say, look, because I'm forgiven, because I already have God's free grace, I can participate in the Nazi government. I can participate in the Holocaust. I can participate in these invasions without compromising my experience of God's grace. I'm already forgiven. What is what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace? And they respond with, no, no, no. The Jesus who forgave you, the Jesus who unconditionally showers you with mercy, is also the Jesus who is God's announcement that your entire life belongs to his reign, that you are his disciple called to faithful love to him and to his people. The God who says to Isaiah, you're clean and your sins are atoned for, is the same one who says, who will I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that you would help us. Lord, that you would help us uh, to meet the reality of God in you. To know and to see your infinite greatness and power and love. To know our own sinfulness. To know the power of your grace. And then, Lord, to respond promptly and sincerely to your call. Lord Jesus, it's not easy to be your follower in this world. There's so many moments where doubt and fear and insecurity creeps in. There's moments where following you makes us feel so different and so alone. But Lord, we pray that more and more you would order our lives by the power of your call. That you would help us, that you would cleanse us, that you would make us uh, ever able to follow you, to serve you, to love our neighbors in this world as forgiven sinners. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.